0: Radio.
1: Stories at the intersection of music and life.
0: Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on Music Life Radio, we feature part two of the interview with Steve Moriarty. Steve is a drummer who has played in many bands, but most notably in the Seattle punk band The Gets. We cover the details surrounding the tragic rape and murder of the Getz lead singer Mia Zapata in 1993, how the surviving Getz went on to form a new band, and eventually play and tour with Joan Jett as a way to raise funds for the murder investigation. We cover the murder trial and conviction, the making of the Getz documentary film, and listen to tracks from Steve's many subsequent bands since the Getz, including Dancing French Liberals of 48, Evil Stig, which is the name of the Joan Jett Project, St. Bushmills Choir, the Pincos, and Blonde Mexicans. Sit back and enjoy part two of Drummer's Day, the Steve Moriarty story.
1: coolest things that happened um, uh, was after our singer was murdered and uh, you know the world kind of stopped for a little while I was in my uh, house kind of dead to the world and uh, I got a call from Courtney Love and I guess she had been asking around about who this Mia Zapata was and who were these the gits and mm-hmm we are in a very isolated little world. And Kurt got on the line, and they were talking, and they said that, uh, Kurt said, hey, man, you know, I heard at the rehearsal space that, uh, about your singer, and like, just want to know if we could help. And this was right after they had gotten back from Italy, and he had tried to kill himself in Italy by ODing, and he was in yeah. the hospital
0: there. In the heroin, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... uh there are a bunch of pictures of him being wheeled out in a wheelchair and yeah. smoking cigarette. So he uh, was pr- using probably really heavily still. He uh, wanted to do a show, like a surprise show with Nirvana and Tad and uh, a couple other bands. One of the guys from Soundgarden, uh, Matt Cameron, had a band with a bass player called Hater. Yeah, I have that with uh, CD. Ben Shepard. Ben Shepard, yeah. They were really good. And uh, so uh, we organized a a show sort of impromptu at the King Cat Theater, which held about a 1,000 people, and uh, announced it on the radio like a few hours before the show and sold Mm -hmm. it out. And... uh, I made between five and $10,000 at the door and, you know, those guys didn't ask for a penny and uh, were really cool to do it. I mean, they came forward and found me and called me yeah, out to do the that's show. that's really cool. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting that, like, our career kind of started with Nirvana and yeah. ended with Nirvana. Yeah. And so I have, a like, a, a spot in my heart for those guys. And I always – I've run into Chris, like, several times – uh, at radio stations and uh, in the community and I have always wanted to to talk to him. I wrote him an email one time and said, you know, look, we both lost our singers and our best friends in, in, to a horrible death and yeah. I just want to say, you know, I know what you feel. And uh, He wrote back a couple of sentence email but I think that we have a lot in common with that band and yeah, you know. Hmm. He, he was a cool guy. They were a cool guy. They were cool guys. So that show was to raise money to help Well, what solve happened the was or uh, what, they solved the murder. The cops didn't do anything yeah. after she was killed because they didn't like the way she looked. And yeah. uh, she was uh, one of the cops on the case, like, kept just commenting about how she was dirty and how she was dressed and stuff. and. How she uh, was drinking and was insinuating that she was like picking guys up or something when she was walking mm. home. So that's that typical sort of blame the victim, blame yeah for the way they're dressed or whatever. And uh, so when the cops weren't doing anything, we got together and we're like, "What are we gonna do?" Uh, and so we said, "Let's fuck. Let's hire." Jim Rockford from Rockford Files, or let's get yeah. the guy from Law and Order. No, we thought we need to get a, a private investigator to to figure this out because it's a small town. <laughs> there has to be somebody. Yeah. It's got to be somebody she knows. It's got to be somebody close to her that that killed her uh, and raped her and like beat her to death. I don't know if it was the the beating in the ruptured organs mm. or the strangulation. Uh, that killed her. So she suffered terribly, and uh, we had to find out who did it. Yeah. So they wouldn't do it again. And so, I mean, I I went out every night in that area where they found her body yeah. with a bat looking for anything that might resemble someone picking up women I don't know what I thought, that they would return to the scene of the crime. That's the only Mm -hmm. thing I kept thinking. They're going to return to the scene of the crime. So I staked it out for like three or four weeks. And uh, I called the cops constantly, asked, have they seen this person? Have they checked out this person? And we put a lot of people through a lot of interrogation and lie detector tests uh, maybe unnecessarily. But um, what it did was it, it kept the cops on it. Mm -hmm. And the one cop that was prejudiced against us and me uh, because of the way we were uh, quit or got transferred or fired or something. And they hired these two uh, cold case detectives to take over uh, all these cold cases that were in Seattle. They got a little extra money. It was the uh, internet boom and the dot-com boom. And they hired two guys, and they had four or five hundred cases to choose from-hmm uh this was five years after the murder, and they could they could work on thirty uh and the first three they chose, one was Mia because there was so much public outrage about yeah. it, and and there were so many. They got hassled so much about it yeah. <laughs> from the public <laughs> yeah. that, and we kept it in the media, and that was, man. I mean, we spent more time trying to find who killed Mia than we actually did as a band. Yeah. Than we, than I probably even knew her.
0: Uh-huh. Uh
1: huh. If that I met amazing. her in eighty five, and she was killed in ninety three, it's eight years, and I spent ten years trying to find out who killed her after that. Yeah. Uh, so we raised something like fifty or sixty thousand dollars just doing benefit shows. Uh, it was funny; like he would come forward and do them. And uh, uh, Hootie and the Blowfish gave us five thousand dollars wow. for their show. Huh. Uh, uh, different bands kind of gotten f- that would find out about it would get in touch, but you know, as soon as Mia died. Uh, the labels that were all interested in the gets, uh, were no longer interested in the three of us as a band. Yeah. And nor were they interested in distributing or buying the gets, the two Gits recordings that we already had mm-hmm. finished. Uh, I mean, she was murdered. The, we were in the process of recording our second album. Uh, she was killed the night before she was to finish the vocal tracks. And then, a couple of days after finishing the vocal tracks, we were to leave on tour of Europe, the u s and Canada and finally play north uh the new music seminar in New York City hmm. at cbgb's and uh, which is a kind of a goal or a dream come true because Andy and Matt uh, used to. Hang out there as teenagers oh, yeah. and go to the Sunday hardcore matinees. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. Andy was from New York City and Matt was from New Jersey. So, anyway, it was a, a long slog of trying to find out who did it.
0: Yeah. And that's all captured, that, that story is all captured in the, your documentary, that gets right. The Gets movie. And you were actually involved in, in helping to co produce that, correct?
1: What I did in that movie was I kind of had archived the most stuff of the band and uh, most people were pretty t- tired of dealing with press people at that point mm-hmm. because they'd been interviewed by some real idiots <laughs> in the national press and mm-hmm. we had done like America's Most Wanted, Criminals and yeah. uh, Unsolved Mysteries and A&E Detectives and uh Cold Case Files and uh, what was the other one? There were like f- six or seven of those shows that we had done trying to find out, get a tip. And, uh, people were tired of being interviewed. And so when, uh, Carrie O'Kane and, uh, her partner wanted to do this film, no one would talk to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, Andy and Matt didn't want to talk to them either because they were done talking about it. Yeah. And, uh, they were so eager that they came up from LA and talked to us and oh. said, you know, they would fund it. They would do everything. And they started out just recording us like you are now, like, uh, yeah. talking about it and getting some facts. And, uh, uh, and so eventually they kind of won over their confidence and, uh, and made the film. And, uh, I guess what my role was was providing them with the interviews and finding the people to talk Mm. and uh, getting them to ask the right questions, taking them to locations to shoot. There were so many versions and they had so much trouble uh, with distribution and technology that – and funding that uh, it took years for them to get it out, I think it was first screened at the e m the the uh, Music Museum in Seattle in uh three years before the four years before the final version oh. came out and screened again uh, It turned over all the rights to this lame company called Liberation. And they're a film company that had some guys from the music industry who got like millionaire investments from uh they got a few million dollars and paid themselves huge salaries and and put out uh like four or five D V D uh documentaries, but they were able to supply the money to yeah. finish it. Uh and they were gonna distribute it but in in exchange, they got the rights to it, so I can't even sell this to you. Yeah, wow! I can't even sell this to you for ten dollars. That's, wow, wow, that's illegal. Horrible. <laughs> so I have, you know, I have one copy and or yeah. no copies, and you have one copy. <laughs> so it's ridiculous. And uh, what we were most upset about after uh, we mixed the second record with the tracks that Mia had recorded before she was killed, and they were all great tracks. They were all really good versions of the songs. Was that, uh, that CZ Records owned the master tapes. So, like, a band can go back and re record a song that they recorded 10 years ago and put it out, right? Yeah. Uh, a different version. And if they own the rights to the song, of course they can. Or they can even cover the song that someone else owns. Yeah. But our singer was killed, so she couldn't go back and sing the songs yeah. again. And, uh, this guy. Had our master tapes sitting in his basement that floods wasn 't paying us the royalties and was uh, allowed our records to be out of print for like three or four years and It was crazy making one morning I woke up before they'd found the killer. I, I was having a, dreams about uh, about the band, and i' had dreamt that we had a gig it was like one of those real life dreams where you think you 're there mm-hmm. and we're in a back of a truck, getting, or in our van, getting ready to go on stage. It was an important gig. It was a good gig. And, uh, Mia was there. I was like, You're not dead. You're here. We're mm-hmm. going to play the show. It's going to be great. And I woke up and I felt really happy, like I'd seen my friend and it was cool. And, uh, we played a sh- another show. And, uh, and so I went to my computer and I started burning discs and I went to Kinko's and copied. The CDs, yeah, uh, and carefully folded them so they looked like real CDs. And then I took my old CDs and I took out the insides and I rearranged the guts. And so I started like producing, <laughs> making my own like CDR versions of the GIFs <laughs> records and uh, giving them to my friends as gifts and sending them yeah. around to because people had been writing me from all over the the world. Asking for the record. And they couldn't get it. And they had heard of it. And they'd heard a song on the radio somewhere. And uh, I got letters from, I mean, Japan. I remember I got a letter from Egypt, from Cairo. I got letters from South America, Brazil, all over England, uh, all over Europe, all over the States. Uh, These were written letters. And then later, emails dozens and dozens of emails, hundreds of emails, uh, you know, saying, that song Second Skin saved my life, you know, and uh, I was going to kill myself until I blasted that song and I knew I could get through it because Mia could get through it and uh, it it just realized the impact that that the music had had on so many people. Uh, But we didn't own it and so... I guess he met, he met harder times and um, I started negotiating with him and biting my tongue and uh, yeah. <laughs> allowing myself to let him talk about himself for an hour mm. and uh, befriended him and then uh, waited till he uh, lost his job <laughs> and offered him uh, $10,000 for the right for our rights back, wow! So I had to pay the motherfucker, yeah, ten thousand dollars for your own stuff. the rights to our own music.
0: But you own, you own them now, as a band. we own them now, yeah. and That's we re
1: released them. And it's the smartest thing we ever did, yeah. Well, it's amazing. I, I was, yeah, I was gonna wonder. And know, so these are those. we remastered them with Jack mm-hmm. and Dino. And re-released them, redid the the notes, added a bunch of extra songs, and they will be in print as long as I'm alive, yeah. <laughs> as long as I can. And the guy who put out our first single, uh, Mike from Broken Records, uh, put up the money and distributed and uh, put put out the rec- the CDs and distributed them. Is that Mike Millette?
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, Mike yeah. Millet. He's a guitarist as well. Yeah, he, he used to write for Maximum Rock and Roll, I think. Yeah,
1: he was involved in the collective, and he... Uh, he interviewed us. It was our interview mm-hmm. for... Uh, actually, it was Lance from J Church interviewed us and Mike, Mike and Lance. Uh, Lance died recently, mm. but we had kind of a connection with Maximum Rock and Roll, which was cool. So, anyway, the gets is... It's a long story. I don't... Uh, it was the uh, best time of my life uh, with the best people I've ever known, and... Uh, I kept playing after that, you know. After Mia died, we kept the band together, if for nothing else, to honor her and to play benefits to raise money for the private investigation.
0: Yeah. Uh, Were you, did you? When did you? How how long of a gap was there before you started playing music, or did you always just keep playing?
1: Let's see. We wanted to play uh, finish our second record. We played the record release party. In March. So let's see. Mia was killed July 7th. We played the following March 17th as a a band. We wrote all new songs and uh, and it was therapeutic. It was like going up in the rehearsal space and just playing loud and fast and Mm -hmm. for hours at a time and just letting it all out. uh, And then going out at night and looking for the killer.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Now, is that dancing? French liberals of 48. Is that what you guys
1: are called? Yes. We chose the best rock band name ever conceived. (laughs) Uh, the dancing French liberals of 48. Uh, I cannot explain that, (laughs) but our bass player, Matt insisted on that being the name (laughs) and it became DFL for a while. But then of course there was a band called DFL. So we didn't go that way either. Uh, And that was a prolific band We put out a single, an EP, and an album uh, All in about two or three years And we ended up touring the US Here is Dancing French Liberals of 48 with
0: Spit in Your Eye
1: Jet heard about the Gits and really became a fan. And con, Actually, I contacted her. I wrote her a letter because she had made a video that was premiering on MTV uh, for a song called Go Home that she had co-written with Kathleen Hanna from uh, Bikini Kill. Yeah. She was like uh, this sort of Olympia, Riot girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, representative singer, um, but she was writing songs with her, and they had this. Uh, and in the video, they're at a. It was like a a scene set up like Mia uh, at the comet, leaving the bar like she did, trying to walk home like she did, being stalked by a guy and attacked like she was, mm-hmm. except for in this video. Joan Jett's the protagonist, and she's wearing her leather jacket and mm. she knees the guy in the balls and runs away and escapes with her life and then at the end they they said dedicated to me as zapata uh, uh and the date she lived and yeah. um I just thought that that was uh in poor taste mm-hmm. and I wrote to uh, her. I didn't know if she'd get it and said, look, you know, I mean, if you really want to help, that's not that doesn't help. It's <laughs> uh, so like what she could have done to get away, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, you could send us some money. And uh, she wrote back and said, oh, you know, I'm just such a big fan of your band. I put your sticker on my favorite guitar and... Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I'm really into it, and you know, maybe uh, when I'm going to be in Seattle, we could get together for a drink. So we did, and her manager called up, and uh, we uh, learned some songs, and we played them at a few shows and rehearsed in uh, Vancouver. And the shows were so popular that we ended up... We did half Get Songs with her singing, and then we did half uh, Joan Jett and the Blackheart songs with us playing, so we kind of split the bill. Yeah, and we should have called it Joan Jett and the Gets, but it ended up calling it Evil Stig, which is Gets backwards. Yeah. Gets Live yeah. backwards yeah, yeah. <laughs> because her manager and her uh, entourage of, of uh, handlers and business people take care of all the decisions for her. But that was was not where we were from. We were from a DIY. Yeah indie art (laughs) (laughs) independent if not anarchistic like culture and uh so we managed to do uh an album that came out on warner brothers and uh was supposed to benefit the private murder investigation but we never got any money for that either and uh (laughs) It went out of print, and now pretty much all you can find are the thousands and thousands of promotional copies that were sent out, and it was never distributed properly or advertised. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, here it is. Did you ever have a conversation with Joan Jett about that? Like, After the fact? Yeah. Uh, that it didn't sell or anything? Yeah. No, Before we talked about really a lot get, of things. Yeah. Uh, we became friends, and we uh, did a tour... We actually played CBGBs, and, yeah. you know, she gave a lot of her time and effort and uh, helped out a lot, but she just has had made a decision not to deal with the business part of her career, yeah. and she... But when we met her and did the first shows, she would dress up in these little rock and roll suits, like she had this skin-tight cat suit, you know, <laughs> like like uh Catwoman or yeah. Batwoman or something and uh uh and would always have these like sort of sparkly rock outfits on but by the time uh she was done playing with us she was uh, wearing jeans and a leather bondage belt and uh t-shirt and uh you know exactly what she wanted to wear so i think that maybe we freed her a little bit to rock again yeah. Oh, that's good. Outside of her, you know, her same band that she's had Uh forever.
0: This is Evil Stig featuring Joe Jett and the Gits. Crimson and Clover.
1: Places that the gets never got to play, we got in front of some people and uh, we promoted uh you know just safety and and uh, awareness of the of rape and violence against women and the murder investigation did a lot of radio interviews and interviews uh with magazines and things like that actually one of the early you know, we did a uh, we did play uh new music seminar or another New York City uh, music event, CMJ, something like that. And uh, with Moby and uh, did a a radio interview with Moby, Mm -hmm. not radio, but uh, internet interview or early internet interview where people could write, ask questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, But she's a very cool, she's very cool, uh, well-meaning person. And it's just, uh, she's had an incredible career and, she introduced me to Lemmy, so... Oh, nice. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's cool. I drank uh, whiskey with her. Did you guys play on the bell with Motorhead at, s- at some point with that band, or?
1: No, we headlined all the shows. Yeah. Uh, it was Lollapalooza, and mm-hmm. Motorhead was playing somewhere else that yeah. same day yeah, yeah. that Joan Jett was playing. And so they both had similar... We were in the backstage of the arena, and uh, yeah. we went back there and talked to her. Uh, Pearl Jam was playing then, too, and... Uh, it was a good, it was a good, uh, bill. But after that, I, uh, us during the Gits or shortly thereafter, I, I was always loving Irish, I always loved Irish music and, uh, started a seven piece Irish folk punk band called the St. Bushmills Choir. So I started to try to get away from, from the, uh, from the Gits a little bit and have some more fun. I had a record out on, uh, it was called Profane Existence, which was a anarchist punk label who put out the vinyl, and an Empty Records put out a CD. There's a very popular band now called Flogging Molly. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a similar type of instrumentation and a similar band, and we almost were kind of uh, offered shows and stuff with them and uh, didn't end up gaining the popularity that they did. Mm-hmm. But... This is a better band than oh, they okay. were, yeah. and uh, <laughs> it was pretty well known. Here is Sam Hall, as performed by St.
0: Bushmills Choir. Oh, my name, Edison Hall, Chimney
2: sweet, gymnast, sweet. Oh, my name, Sam Hall. Chimney sweep. Oh, my name is Sam Hall. And I hate you, wanna know. And my neck must pay the price when I die.
1: You guys recorded that with the Jack and Dino too, right? Yeah, he recorded that. It's got like violin and accordion and bass and guitar. And ben London was in that band and Eric Greenwald, who was in uh, Subvert and Christ Driver and some other uh, sort of post-hardcore and post-hardcore bands. And uh, So that band actually lasted about five years. After playing in a seven-piece band, I was kind of tired of of having to get so many people in a room just to play music. So I formed a duet with Vanessa Veselka, who was a, a labor union organizer at the time and was a singer in a band called Bell, uh, which was a five-piece, I think. Hmm. And uh, we decided we were sick of big bands, and so we formed a duet that would fit in a one car Yeah, uh, with just uh, acoustic guitar and drums and... Uh, some of these songs are excellent. She was a great songwriter, and uh, we arranged them together. And I, this is the one song I sing on in the world is on this record. The band was called the Pinkos, and that's Billy Jack on the cover. Huh? Kicking a karate, kicking a guy, a <laughs> cowboy who was <laughs> harassing the Indians at the school. So this, yeah, that was kind of my overtly political duet. Here are the Pinkos with Salem. Floating in the
2: waters outside of
1: The were always huge fans of the Minutemen. Mm. And uh, when we were back in Ohio, we, rec- we recorded a... Uh, way back in 88, we decided to record an album like the Minutemen, where they had done Double Nickels on a Dime, one of their records. That was a double or triple album, and uh, they recorded like 23 songs in three hours or something. Maybe it was six hours. Mm-hmm. We decided to try to do that, and we ended up recording 16 songs in three hours <laughs> and uh, put out a cassette. And after Mia died, uh, you know, I listened to that cassette over and over again and uh, realized, that, wow, it was really good, mm. and released an album uh, called Kings and Queens that that actually is was recorded live to two tracks in a studio because we only had money to record. We did have money to multi-track, yeah. but like, if I worked at a record company and I heard this band of like twenty, twenty-one-year-old kids, yeah. <laughs> I would be like, "Wow, it's like a cross between Patty Smith and like, I don't know, Johnny Thunders or something." It's <laughs> very good.
0: So, when did you move from Seattle down to the Bay Area to Oakland?
1: So they found the guy who killed Mia, uh our singer. She uh The guy had been in Seattle for the summer and was stalking women and didn't know her. And you know, she was at the wrong place at the wrong time and uh, she uh he moved to he was living in the Florida Keys, like as far away as he could get. Yeah. And there became a DNA databank of felons uh, where all felons have to give a sample of their DNA that goes into a computer databank. And it started a f- couple of years after Mia t- was killed. And this is before the O.J. Simpson trial. And so DNA has really not come into its own in the courts yet. So they submitted the DNA. The medical examiner who dealt with her body actually happened to be a uh, music fan and was friends with Mudhoney or Nirvana, a lot of bands. He was a musician and a fan and he recognized uh, Mia from the gets because he'd seen us play and he was a fan and he, uh, he was the one that knew who she was because her idea was missing. Mm -hmm. She, he had the foresight to take samples from the teeth marks on her breasts and, uh, this is like really, really early, early DNA just starting to be used. Not even used yet. Yeah. And I called him and I he said, I have some evidence that that can be used to find the person. And I begged the guy to tell me, mm-hmm. what is this evidence you have? And he said, it can't be used yet, but may, someday it will be yeah, used. Wow, he's really had a foresight. <laughs> and he said, I can't tell you what it is, but he had the foresight to know that maybe someday DNA would come to light, and it did, Uh, and that he died in a hang-gliding accident. Oh, wow. Uh, So the cold case detectives found the evidence that he had left and uh, submitted it, and they got a match to this fucker who was in uh, Florida who had gotten another felony for... Uh, assaulting his pregnant girlfriend, kicking her in the gut and mm. the stomach and uh, breaking her nose. Wow. Yeah. So they went down and picked him up and brought him back to Seattle uh, and put him in the King County Jail. And I, was, I had gone back to school, graduate school. I was looking for another, another way to have a career. And uh, I was doing my internship at the public defender's office who was supposed to defend this guy. Mm-hmm. couldn't believe the irony of it. Yeah, wow. And I was going to the University of Washington and they uh, it was really ups- <laughs> it was really upsetting because I had a pass to go into the jail anytime I wanted. Wow. And I uh I I could have gone in there and 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 met with him. Yeah. I, to- I could have called him out and met with him in one of those little Booze yeah. with the glass, you know, with the uh, bulletproof glass. And uh, it, it was took all my uh, strength not to do that yeah. and not to threaten him yeah. uh, or something yeah. or just say, you know, why and how and do mm-hmm. you know what you did to people? So I, I transferred from that job uh, and uh, went through the trial and testified. And uh, the one thing uh, that the women's shooting that gets documentary uh, had a lot of footage of her family and people testifying about Mia's person. And the defense tried to say that uh, Mia had been uh, provocative and was, uh, had consensual rough sex. And uh, the footage they, they showed uh, from the movie was i think what actually swayed the jury to uh to find the guy guilty yeah that's it really amazing. played a big part in in getting the the sentence uh the guilty verdict and also the jury so interesting stuff so if that that film the gets documentary accomplished way more than it, it becoming the next like Michael Moore like Academy Award yeah. sensation. Yeah, yeah. Just the crucial footage of her father speaking about his daughter yeah. is was so compelling that uh the court, you know, the jury was in tears. Mm-hmm. So, it served a purpose.
0: And he ended up getting the 36-year sentence. 36
1: right. years, which was over yeah. the maximum. The maximum was like 10 to 15 years for yeah. second-degree murder and rape. Mm-hmm. Can you believe it? Yeah, that's <laughs> And they lock up people for uh, life for yeah. You can get three felony for drug charges, a piece of cake yeah. if
0: you're a third time. You know,
1: some guy stole a, a copy of Cinderella VHS tape from Target. It was his third strike, and he went to prison for the rest of his life. Yeah, because he was on he had AIDS, mm. and since he was a heroin addict, they wouldn't give him pain medication. Wow. So he needed money for his habit. <laughs> yeah, I love California. <laughs> it should fucking just saw it off and let it float away.
0: Uh, But anyway, so did you? You finally got closure with uh, the trial ending.
1: Trial ended. The guy went to prison. I got to talk at him. Yeah. I called him a worm Uh, at the sentencing. uh, At the sentencing, I got to uh, uh, kind of face him down, and I got to to uh, testify. Right after that, uh, my girlfriend and later my wife and I packed our bags and moved to. From uh, Seattle to beautiful Oakland, California, because uh, we really missed crime. We thought <laughs> we could find some there. And, uh, <laughs> I got a job at San Francisco General Hospital in the uh, working with homeless people and in the emergency room and uh, outside of the emergency room, out in the community. And I definitely got my mind off uh, my own problems for a while. Yeah. So that was a pretty intense job. And my wife and I are both social workers and both drummers. And uh, she actually plays with uh, different bands. She played with the Black Cat Orchestra in Seattle. And uh, she recently did a recording with Mira, who uh, performed recently at Café de Nord. Hmm. And she plays, does a lot of collaborations with different musicians, but she's an amazing singing and songwriter. I moved here and started a band called Blonde Mexicans. <laughs> yeah. Because I speak Spanish, you know, and I always wanted to be Mexican. And the two other people in the band were actually blonde Mexicans. So it, <laughs> I was a wannabe blonde Mexican.
0: <laughs> here is Blonde Mexicans with America
3: we war What the hell we fight for I don't wanna see my brother die But if we stop this fight We'll them make it all But everything will be okay As long as they come back Cause we're in America But then they say that's free enough We're in America So the name of this, we're gonna cut it off never mind the sacrifice and that we all will make.
1: I guess I was trying to recreate the gets. I think for years I tried to recreate the gets in different bands, and uh, but I never was able to to do that. You know, the Pinkos was a good band. The St. Bushmills Choir was a good band. You know, I got to play with Joan Fucking Jet.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I got to uh, play all over Europe, and uh, I went to Japan with a band called Stink, mm. uh, who needed a, a drummer for a tour. I went to Taiwan with a a calypso band playing some piece of metal barrel at a steel sculpture festival uh so it's been a pretty amazing uh drumming career uh you know i've got to work with some really cool people and some really cool bands uh very popular bands i can say that i knew and hung out with green day and lots of dead rock stars, Nirvana, (laughs) Sublime, and uh, let's see, what was the guy from Alice in Chains? Uh, Lane. Lane guy, yeah, that guy. And I also did uh, a lot of uh, fundraising for different organizations. So part of, uh, I think, music has the the power to uh, unite communities and also to... To make change, you know. The Minutemen understood that. There are certain bands that know that implicitly, certain oh, yeah. musicians that understand that they they can take that role. Uh, and so there is an organization that taught self-defense to women um, after in the wake of Mia being killed uh, because they figured nobody felt safe. They didn't have their... Yeah. Was that Home Alive? It's called, called Home yeah. Alive. And uh, they put out a two or three disc CD that had everyone from Exine, Cervanca, Jello, uh, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden. So one of the last things I did in Seattle was put together a second Home Alive compilation so that they could keep their, uh, after 10 years, they wanted to keep the organization going. So I uh, called in the favors and put out uh, Home Alive compilation number two. And my friend who put out the gets records on Broken Records, Mike Millette, pitched in and donated the pressing, and they made some money to keep it going for a while. Is that available? Uh, no. I think it's available through the Home Alive website. Okay. But uh, I don't think it's available commercially anymore. Mm. Uh, people don't buy CDs anymore. It's mm. kind of weird. They download music. What's next for you musically?
0: Are you, Are you looking to do anything new in the future here?
1: Yeah. Between my wife and I, we've got about... 12 drum sets, and uh, (laughs) no, actually about exactly seven drum sets, uh, and they're going to no use whatsoever. And uh, so uh, I had played with uh, Chuck Lindo and uh, Klaus Floride from Dead Kennedys and Mike Cochran in a band called American Professionals for a bit and uh, just ended that collaboration, so... I was looking to form another band, and we'll probably keep playing for as long as uh, you know, as long as my arms work. So, <laughs> yeah, you, know, you don't even need two arms these days to play drums; just one. <laughs> it's true. Yeah,
0: Def Leppard can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Steve. Um, is, is there anything else? people should know or go to learn more about the gets music or is there anything you'd like to promote?
1: Yeah. Would somebody help me figure out how to like deal with all this social networking bullshit <laughs> so that people can, uh, <laughs> can find the gets and, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and download the music. Yeah. I need some, we got to get our website. We're really bad with that. You know, I, it's been my mission to keep the music out there and to keep me yeah. as, uh, legacy alive. And, uh, because that's all I have left of uh, uh, of her, and that's uh, uh, all that anybody has. And the Gets were a great band, and you know it was the best band I've ever played with, and the most fun I've ever had. So uh, uh, I intend to keep the Gets in circulation because, like I said, uh, you know the cream rises to the top, and the more years that pass, uh, the more people. Uh, Tell me how the Gits has influ- have influenced them and their music or their life. I uh, want to keep doing it. I want to keep it out there. Uh, it's going to be in the cloud next, I think.
0: We'll make sure we got lots of links back to all the albums and stuff.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, we have thegits.com. The yeah. uh, I think it says under construction yeah. right now. <laughs> so you can contact me personally, and I'll make you a CDR. <laughs> no, I'll send you a real CD. Yeah. Uh, or vinyl. Thank you very much.
0: All right, excellent. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thanks again to Steve Moriarty for an excellent interview. One of my favorite bands, The Gits. We're going to leave you with a song of theirs called Second Skin.
2: Dun-dun.
0: Thank you for listening to Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter, and we'll catch you next time.